The planet is heating up. The oceans are becoming filled with plastic. Change starts now. Change starts now. We're on a countdown. To zero waste. Five, four, three, two, one. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. Here's your host, Laura Nash. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Nash. This week, I'm speaking with Matt Wilkins. He's a postdoctoral fellow at Vanderbilt Center for Science Outreach, and he's done a lot of research on barn swallows studying their sound and feather variations, but you may have seen him published recently in Scientific American. From July 6, 2018, the article is called More Recycling Won't Solve Plastic Pollution. It's a lie that wasteful consumers cause the problem and that changing our individual habits can fix it. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thank you for having me on the show. You have the greatest quote in here for recycling. So you say, recycling plastic is to saving the earth what hammering a nail is to halting a falling skyscraper. Tell me about that quote. Right. Well, I'm glad you like that because a lot of people tore that analogy apart. (laughs) Really? Yeah. But, you know, I struggled for the, you know, the appropriate analogy because in the U.S. particularly, we focus most of our energy on, you know, trying to increase recycling and convince people to even do it in the first place, which would seem crazy um, to a lot of people, like particularly in the EU and maybe Canada. But, I mean, we all know reduce, reuse, recycle, but we just skip over those first two for some reason. And those are much more powerful. The reason that I say recycling is like, you know, trying to stop a, a skyscraper from falling is, first of all, that most people aren't even aware that there is a skyscraper falling, that we are facing a huge global disaster in plastic pollution. So that's the first thing. Second, how do we address it? Well, we just hammer away at this thing, which, you know, may, first of all, it's not the right tool. Uh, you know, where, where do you hammer on a, you know, it's like largely metallic. We, we should be focusing on what are the structural problems that have led to this collapse and, and to the just massive unfettered production of, of plastic that we're just casting out into, well, eventually into the ocean um, and many, many parts of the world. But, you know, at, at the at very minimum, we're just burying in different parts of the country. And we should be looking at, you know, how do we reduce the production of plastic? And Absolutely. how do we reuse more of it and value that product for, you know, the kind of miracle technology that it is rather than just throwing it away Absolutely. or recycling it once? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it has its place. Certainly, there are a lot of plastic things that you can use for, I mean, look at Legos. They're going to last probably for 100 years or more where kids can still play with them because they're they're built pretty right. well. But then you get something like a plastic shopping bag that blows into a tree and just like falls apart within a week or whatever. So there's all different various types of plastic, I guess you could say. Right. But I sometimes say recycling is like putting a band-aid over a bullet wound with the bullet still in and it's like bleeding everywhere <laughs> like the band-aid yeah you know so right. that's why i loved your analogy because it's it's not working it's silly it's a silly solution although aluminum helps because we know that aluminum is made at i think it's 900 degrees and then to recycle it only requires 600 degrees uh so yeah. it's better for sure but like do you really need to be drinking right three aluminum cans a day to have all of this carbon being produced for a truck to come and take it away and then more carbon to like have a um you know heat put it back together like it's just crazy you know like just just use a glass or whatever Um, yeah or yeah just reuse i mean just reuse 
same container. And, yeah, yeah, that's what I, I mean is a glass because actually glass is apparently problematic to recycle as well. So it's better to have glass containers that we can reuse again instead of sending it away or to landfill because I also heard that they found glass that's like 3,000 years old from like Egypt. The glass mm. will stay around for a while too, which is interesting, but we can also crush it and make it back into sand. So it's not right. nearly as bad. But it's, not, it's also not biologically active. It doesn't cause cancer, you know, whereas Absolutely. You know, neither does aluminum. But aluminum cans are also aligned with EPA. Yes. I heard recently that unless you're drinking from glass, you're drinking from plastic. So whether it's a can or, you know, a can of soup, like they're aligned with plastic. Mm-hmm. I actually learned that just this year that there is a BPA lining on aluminum cans, like beverage cans. And that was so disappointing right. because I try and keep my kid away from, you know, everything toxic and all this stuff. Apparently, mm-hmm. that's not good either. And right. I don't know what to give him for like a treat of a drink. Like we make lemonade, so we'll squeeze lemons and add some a little bit of sugar. Uh, but mm-hmm. he's kind of left out, I think, because I don't get him any of those drinks. <laughs> He's probably not too happy with that. But uh, Matt, you have a postdoc, and right. you also are um, a fellow at Vanderbilt Center for Science Outreach, right? Mm-hmm. Which is right. super awesome. And you did a lot of studies in barn swallows and yeah. um, the feather. So it's it's sound and feather variations mostly that you studied? So my PhD research was looking at the evolution of sexual communication systems. So basically, like, how do males size each other up? When they're competing, and how do females choose a mate? And I was looking at multimodal signaling, so what visual and acoustic signals. So, like, how do they look? How do they sing? How are they behaving? Basically, how all of that fits together, you know, to influence mate choice and competitive outcomes. And then how those systems evolve uh, across different populations. So, I was studying populations in six countries across the northern hemisphere, where females are basically selecting for particular traits, they're driving the evolution of how they look and behave over time so that eventually when separated populations become coming back into contact, they don't mate, so they're becoming new species. Wow, that's very cool. And this is a little bit different to be writing about plastic and recycling. So what what (laughs) was it that sort of uh, led you to make that switch? I mean, Scientific American is a really big publication, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was very excited when they accepted the, the article. I've become increasingly interested in reaching out to the public, you know, so I've done my formal scientific research that's been, you know, accepted in these many, oftentimes paywalled journals that, you know, most people don't have access to, uh, even if they wanted to read them. It felt to me in some ways pointless or at the very least frustrating to be pushing the edge of, of our knowledge about the world, you know, while you know, the level of the public, there's this widening gap between what scientists know and the public understands or accepts. And so I wanted to focus more on communicating with the public and, you know, helping people to engage with what I see as the real problems that I don't want to paint the the mainstream media too badly or with too broad of a stroke. But, you know, I mean, there are many things like plastic that people just aren't paying attention to enough. Mm -hmm. So... You know, as a biologist, I was like learning more and more about, you know, how this affects human reproductive, you know, exposure to plastic can, uh, you know, affect re- reproductive health and, you know, potentially lead to, you know, cancer and stuff. But it's also a huge ecological disaster that's, you know, going on all the time. And people just aren't as aware of it as I think they should be and, and as engaged in how they can reduce that impact in their daily lives. Were you seeing lots of plastic debris when you were doing your research out in the field? 
well, <laughs> with barn, barn swallows live in barns and like in the culverts under roads and stuff like that. So, you know, and I, and I was traveling, um, we did the transect across Russia. So, um, and I was doing field work in Turkey and also in Boulder, Colorado. So that itself, you know, describes a pretty diverse range of socioeconomic development and uh, availability of infrastructure. So Boulder is pretty clean, as you might imagine. And, you know, a lot of these barns, you know, people are even, you know, cleaning up the barn swallow poop. Uh, and they're worried about poop in their barns, which I think is hilarious. But you go to Turkey and, you know, they have an, it, it, it's a very different relationship with the environment. I, I feel like they were sort of at a stage, you know, where we were before the Earth Day movement and, and sort of the push for more environmental awareness in the U.S. And then, you know, Russia is even far further behind that. So, yeah, there was like lots of trash along the road and stuff like that in many parts of those areas. And did you see any recycling in those countries, in Turkey or Russia? In Turkey, and, uh, well, particularly in, you know, large swaths of Siberia, you know, in the city you may have some access to recycling, um, but in, in like in Russia. But I, I think in both places, I would say there's little to no infrastructure for that. I think that's a big surprise to people is that, yes, we have recycling where I live and, and I think where you live too, but... I would assume that most of the world doesn't. Some of the world doesn't right. even have garbage takeaway services. So, yeah, it's really frustrating. You did mention something of when you're studying birds and you sort of got into toxins and stuff like that. And I remember you mentioned this in the Scientific American article. Mm -hmm. Is there evidence that plastic does absorb toxins? Because I hear it does. And then I've had scientists come on the show and say, like, they're not toxicologists, so they're not sure. Yeah, well, I'm also not a toxicologist. And I haven't taken organic chemistry very recently, but, you know, I have read in, uh, you know, many reputable places that that that, that is a, a big issue. And, that, you know, that, um, Rebecca Altman has written quite extensively about this, about the, the problem with how plastics uh, adsorb, well, basically that they can accumulate persistent organic pollutants that are just kind of out there in the environment all over the place. You know, things that we've stopped producing industrially for decades still persist in the environment. Things like PCBs and DDT and uh, also some heavy metals like lead and zinc have, have all been shown to adhere to plastics. And I think what some scientists say is that plastics are inert, right? But I think that's only true if all of the monomers that make up the plastic are bound up but the polymerization process of making plastic is always kind of incomplete. And as UV radiation and mechanical wave action and other types of like you know erosion on the plastic will begin to degrade it and fray the end, which can then become active. And plastics are hydrophobic, and so they will accumulate other hydrophobic things like PCBs and DDT in the plastic. Mm -hmm. It's quite scary because microplastics we know are in our drinking water. NPR and Nova have been reporting on this and it's it's in bottled water. It's in a lot of tap water. It's in our Great Lakes. It's in our oceans. Yeah. And there was a study, I think, a year ago that, showed, you know, they sampled in the Marianas Trench, you know, the deepest part of the ocean. You know, it's like over 30,000 feet deep. And they found extremely high concentrations of some of these PCBs and, you know, and plastics down there. So, I mean, these things are everywhere. 
Wasn't there and, just and, a picture of a yeah. plastic bag from the Mariana Trench? I think they yeah, found one in there. Yeah. So sad. Yep. And then there's another thing you mentioned in the article too, uh, that plastic odors mimic food sources for wildlife. Does that mean if somebody puts baking grease in plastic and then it, it smells like that? Or are we talking something different? The reporting I saw on that is that it's actually from algae colonizing the plastic. And the oh. algae, when algae degrades, it re- releases a sulfur smell. The problem is that algae grows really well in this plastic substrate, um, and it can, you know, you can basically get thicker than it would, like, you know, dispersed in the water column. And um, the smell of the algae is a signal to krill that seabirds use to hunt for these little crustaceans. And so they think they're going to get krill, and they have that smell, and they just they're just scooping up the plastic and eating it. That's but, horrible. So, there's, so there is this odor that kind of mimics a normal signal to their food. And they've shown that about, you know, in a, a recent survey, they showed like 90% of seabirds have some plastic in them. Yikes. So let's talk a little bit about the history that you mentioned too, about sort of how we've come to this stage in America, mostly the Keep America Beautiful campaign. So what right. was that all about? So it's actually a nonprofit that still exists and is still very active in the U.S. They're one of the largest environmental groups in the United States. And they were formed in 1953 um, with the founding members of Philip Morris, Pensacola, Anheuser-Busch, Coca-Cola, and a, a lot of other individuals and corporations. And it's been suggested that the 1953 year is significant because that was also the year of the first attempt to regulate single-use containers. And so in Vermont, they proposed this legislation that said you can't produce a non-refillable beverage container. And the reason was for trash reasons, right? So, but there was a lot of lobbying from industry of which Keep America Beautiful seems to be somewhat implicated, although, you know, this is kind of a difficult study or, or really come to understand exactly what their influence is. But, I mean a lobbying group that is supported by a heavily profitable group of companies who have a capitalist self-interest in producing, you know, in their model of production, which is to sell the consumer the container along with their product and then let the consumer deal with that. Mm-hmm. Like that, that is the most cost-effective model for them. And so it's in their interest to promote that model, you know, through whatever means possible. Just the for money. Beautiful. It's one of those means. Mm -hmm. So my understanding is that they had outwardly opposed bottled deposit bills up until like the 70s, and then they switched tax after opposing publicly the California bottle bill, uh, which was then later passed in the, I think, 82 or something like that. But then they kind of switched tax, and then they focused more on diverting public attention to recycling and kind of away from extended producer responsibility for the pollution that they are contributing to. So just sort of like, let's all, you know, fight litter bugs, you know, and let's just uh, everybody recycle or throw it away, but just don't let it be on the ground, you know. But, of course, we have no control. I mean, we're just a big corporation producing billions of containers. We have no responsibility for this stuff. And that we've kind of accepted that for the most part. Which is exactly the problem. And then I want to read another quote from your article 
that says this psychological misdirect has built public support for a legal framework that punishes individual litterers with hefty fines or jail time, while imposing almost no responsibility on plastic manufacturers for the numerous environmental, economic, and health hazards imposed by their products. This is a, my my favorite quote of the whole uh, the whole article because it it's so true. And what kind of backwards system is this that one person can throw a bottle on the ground and get in trouble for it, but then Coke can produce 110 billion bottles a year and right. let them go wherever they want? That's the problem. Right. Yep. So would a beverage yeah. container law work today? Like, I feel like I feel like the beverage companies are like bigger than government. I don't know how government's going to stand up to them. <laughs> personally. But if they could, would that solve the problem? Well, so, I mean, I mean, it does work. And there's still 10 states in the U.S. that um, that have all the bills, and they have two to three times the recycling rates and reclaiming rates. But those those rates, they don't really reflect the full impact of the bottle deposits because not only are they reclaiming, you know, higher amounts of waste and preventing it from going out into the streams or, you know, just being thrown in the dump, you know, we're reusing those materials, but it also increases the post-recycler value of that material because, you know, with um, single stream recycle, which is recycling, which is, you know, what most people, particularly in the U.S., do, you throw everything in the same bin and then we, you know, it's, it's like trying to unscramble an egg. Um, you're never going to get <laughs> out what you put into it. Yeah. And I actually recently learned that we spend more energy trying to unscramble that egg than we do trying to transport all the materials, you know, through the pickup at your curb, which is shocking because that seems like a huge energy expenditure. But um, it's very intensive to separate that. Mm-hmm. So when you do a bottle deposit, you know, you're you're turning the bottle back so you know what you're getting back because you are the one who sold it in the first place. And so you have really high quality, highly pure materials that you're reclaiming, which are more valuable to the recyclers and to the industry that can then reuse them. So instead of accepting the fact that it'll take a thousand milk jugs to make a park bench, you know, which is then not recyclable, you know, because with single stream, everything is downgraded in quality for the most part. You, you, you almost never get a bottle turned into another bottle. It's always some lesser valued plastic. Um, and basically, only has a it it lengthens the life of that material only slightly. It's not a circular economy at all. But if you have higher purity of the plastic material, it's more reusable. So you could potentially turn a plastic bottle into a plastic bottle and close the loop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or you can use glass. Like for example, in my province, you can take your beer bottles back to the beer store, and I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure they just clean and sanitize them and use them again. Right. Which is cool because then you don't have to go through all this process of breaking it down and turning yeah. it into something new. Well, it's an added benefit of the microbrewery craze that, you know, many of the microbreweries also have like a growler where you can just get, you know, a larger glass container of your local brew and then return it. I mean, the deposits have never totally died in some sectors of our society. It's just that we've allowed large corporations to convince us that this whole single-use container uh, is the way to go, but it's simply unsustainable and irresponsible. Absolutely. I totally agree. And then we have people fighting the bottle return programs, and we also have people in the U.S. who are trying to put bans on plastic bag bans, which is Mm -hmm. crazy. 
Yeah. Do you know anything about those sorts of movements that are happening in government? Like, why are people fighting for this? Is it just to make more money so they can keep trashing the planet with single-use plastic? Yeah, I think it's a bottom line thing. And, yeah, I think uh, it's in these corporations' interest to, well, at least their quarterly interest, you know, in terms of their, their, their profit, to, you know, maximize, to squeeze every penny out. And basically when they're held responsible for, you know, some of the recycling infrastructure, which is part of bottle deposit bills, then they're going to fight that. And, you know, that applies to, you know, the bottle deposit single-use plastic. But more with the plastic bags, I mean, there's a hugely profitable industry just with producing the plastic bags, which they're not very recyclable. I mean, they're hard to recycle. You know, you have to take it to the store. And in many places, it's unclear what's happening to it. The one major problem with recycling is the lack of transparency, you know, because recycling is based on current, you know, market conditions. For example, mm-hmm. China has just stopped accepting, you know, many types of plastic unless they're below the impossible to reach 99.5% purity level. So that's basically led to a, a huge collapse of the recycling market across the U.S. and other parts of the world um, that depend on China to consume a lot of this stuff that we didn't have any infrastructure to recycle ourselves. And so all over the place, people are either burning plastics or putting it indefinitely in storage warehouses or taking it to landfill. Mm-hmm. I wrote to McDonald's at one point and just said, you know, you're filling up our Canadian soil with your products, but we have this other restaurant, A&W. I don't know if you know that one. And yeah. mm-hmm. it's a fast food chain. And the ones around me in Ontario are almost zero waste, almost. Uh, they'll fill up really? your coffee cup and they are eliminating straws by 2019. So mm-hmm. if you got a to-go cup, for your pop or whatever, your soda for Americans, um, then that would be mm-hmm. garbage. But they also have sit-in options, so they still have those big glass mugs, like the root beer mugs, which I think is so cool. And then, yeah. even though we don't really drink it, and then their packaging is compostable, and then they have a compost area that you can put your paper and food scraps in. And then someone actually, like I looked into this for my area and they actually do collect it and send it to a compost facility. So they're good to go. And I do know that a couple cities in British Columbia, ANW doesn't have the compost receptacle. And I don't know if that's just because there's not a compost facility around or they haven't sort of set it up yet. But I believe that ANW has led the way and set an example and said, hey, it's it's totally possible. We don't need to be producing all this garbage. And so McDonald's, for example, like the fry box, like that could be compostable, right? There are these yeah. little changes I think that they can do. They just don't have enough interest in doing it yet, which I think is the right. The and problem. that's where we consumers come into play by holding them responsible for that. So how do we hold them responsible? Because you did mention that it's not exactly the consumers that are going to change. It's the businesses that are going to change, but the businesses aren't changing. So as consumers, yeah. how do we get the businesses to change? Just by being loud, mm-hmm. squeaky wheel gets the grease. So I mean, and and actually, you know, at, I mean, com- companies we need to be wary of greenwashing. You know, yes. The apparent good behavior when it's actually hiding the same, you know, bad behavior. But I mean, I feel like a lot of 
companies are at least trying to appear responsive. And, and I would argue there there is some reason to hope. Kroger, I don't know if Kroger, is Kroger present in Canada? I don't think so. Grocery yeah, store? Yeah, so I think they're at least one of the large largest grocery stores, if not the largest grocery stores in the U.S. And they have recently said that they're trying to commit to, you know, using more reusable plastics and trying to reduce plastic in their whole supply side. And I just got on Twitter the other day because I, I went to my local Kroger and there was, they had individually shrink-wrapped onions. I was no. like, this is, this is it. This is the last straw. This is absolutely crazy. Oh. And, and I tweeted it out, you know, and, and it didn't get, I mean, it got a few, a few likes and, and stuff, but I tagged Kroger and I'm like, this is absurd. Onions have their own biodegradable <laughs> wrapper. <laughs> what are you doing? Like when we're in the midst of a global plastic crisis and um, somebody from Kroger wrote back and they said, well, we're going to take this to, you know, our supply. We're going to take, we're going to get top men on it, I guess. But so they're going to uh, not do that anymore. Is that what they're, I have no idea. I mean, they said they would, they, they responded, but I mean, if enough people are doing that, right. Then that's, that's what leads to change. You know, and, and if I don't, I'm certainly not going to buy that, so they will stop producing that if, if no one's buying it and they get angry tweets about it every time. Did you see the meme that was going around a couple weeks ago? I think it said, who are we millennials? What do we want? Smaller servings of perishables. <laughs> I don't know. If, did you <laughs> see that meme? <laughs> Uh, no, I didn't see that. It made me so upset. And so, of course, I commented on it on like a really big platform. I think it was Beige Cardigan that that put it on there. And I was like, no, like we don't want smaller things because they're going to come in plastic and we have this crisis, you right. know, and I, I tried to explain it and people did not take that comment very well. And they're like, well, we don't want to huh. waste spinach. And then other people joined in and were like, okay, you get a thing of spinach and you can like chop it up and freeze it or you can have a friend over or right. you can put it in like right. anything, you know, like it's it's like people don't yeah. – they're like offended if you tell them that they have to think or plan ahead. And I think that that's <laughs> part of it, you know, like yeah. if, if you need half an onion instead of a whole onion, maybe just think a little harder and you could use the other half or just compost it, you know, like, yeah, it's a wasting food, mm -hmm. but at least you're not putting a foam container and plastic wrap and a sticker into landfill for the next couple hundred years. And then yeah. maybe people have to dig that stuff up and deal with it. There's a restaurant in Toronto that said, oh, look at us. We're so great because we have compostable uh, forks and knives. Like they're – like they look plastic but mm -hmm. made out of some compostable probably corn or something. And then they had garbage cans in the restaurant and that's it. So no uh, compost. And this is what you're so saying. It's really not any different. <laughs> yeah, about greenwashing. It's like, look at us. We're green. But like you're not doing it right. But – then I think, okay, in landfill in 100 years, like, it's probably better than plastic. So I think it's like a tiny step right. up. It's, a, it's an incremental improvement, but it still leads to this single-use disposable mindset. So it's, it's still enabling. And it also complicates the recycling infrastructure because, like, this number seven oh, yes. CLA plastic, which is that compostable stuff, I'm, I'm sure you know this. Um, I don't know. You may have already talked about this extensively. But, I mean, these are not recyclable in almost no. any facilities on the planet. So without a industrial-scale compost facility, that basically won't degrade much faster than, you know, plastic, I, I think. And and it, and it complicates the recycling. And, and it decreases the quality of the post-recycled material because it's considered an impurity. 
Absolutely. If you're trying to make new plastic and there's like all this like corn stuff in there or whatever it's right. made out of, that's not going to be good, right? Right. Yeah. There's a bread store that does that too They're with their bags and they don't even say on the bag that they're compostable or anything. So I was kind of annoyed a little bit because everybody's going to be putting them in the recycling and the recycling truck's going to take them. We actually uh, take plastic bags in my community from curbside, which is the only place I've ever seen that does that. You're right. Usually you have to take it into a grocery store or something. Um, but here they collect them curbside. I'm not sure what they do with them because they're low quality, but they're doing something with them. But yeah, so let's talk about the zero waste lifestyle a little bit because you kind of basically said, you know, it's not going to make a difference. I think that it makes a difference. I think that I'm making a big difference because if we think about putting like a bag of trash out every week from a household and I don't do that anymore, I just save 50 bags of trash from going to the landfill. No, I, I did not mean for it to come across that zero waste lifestyle doesn't make a difference. I think it makes a huge difference. I just think that it's intractable for a large number of people for reasons of availability of infrastructure, you know, to like well, food stores, for example, that don't have all the packaging and stuff, you mm. know, availability of recycling infrastructure to just bandwidth. You know, like if you're working two jobs to make ends meet, you don't have time to like worry about your zero waste li- waste lifestyle. Exactly. And fight against a system that is inherently wasteful. Hmm. Yeah. So I agree with you, though, that the change has to come from the businesses. And that's actually why I feature so many businesses on the podcast. So when I hear of businesses that are doing the right thing, I try and get them on here, not only to promote them, but to talk about it. And then hopefully, if you're listening, you might get some ideas too, to either make your business more sustainable or start one, you know, because I think that businesses have made this problem of not taking care of the after use part of their products. And I think that it's businesses that have to solve it. And we are making a small dent, but we're making a dent, which is great. And I feel like if we figure it out in our own lives, then we can kind of pass that knowledge on. And, you know, people are out there making videos and blog posts and doing everything they can to try and get this message out. It's really weird for me to go back into like normalcy sort of thing, because I I do everything kind of zero waste mostly, but I just traveled to the U.S. for a week and then just seeing so many people go to McDonald's and so many people drinking out of straws and those plastic Mm -hmm. cups. And I just look around me and it's frustrating. (laughs) And so this is why I love your article so much because you basically say it how it is. You're like, it's it's businesses that are the problem. They're the ones that I have to change and we need to write letters and tweet to them and uh, and share messages and, and do what we can. Absolutely. Right. But, it's, but it's also government. You know, local governments can have a huge impact, you know, where they're not fettered by a state ban on plastic bans, for example. Yeah. But, you know, if you care about this issue, you can, you know, work with your city council or you know, your mayor's office, you know, try to get a grassroots thing together to create incentives for recycling, better infrastructure for recycling, you know, get a bottle deposit going and, you know, institute a plastic bag ban or, you know, a 10 cent charge, for example, that's been shown to dramatically decrease use of plastic bags. Um, and you start at the local level and you build and build until, and what I'm hoping eventually in the U.S., who knows, maybe 30 years from now, you know, there'll just be so many states that have plastic bag bans that will make a national ban like the UK just did. 
Yeah, that would be yeah. amazing. You know, when I was in the U.S. last week, I drove from Salt Lake to Vegas because I'd never been there before and I wanted to see what all the fuss was about. It's not really my style, but uh, <laughs> when we, we were miles, like we couldn't even see the city. And all of a sudden, you just started seeing plastic bags everywhere. I assume it's windy there. So in the fences and in the little like cactus plants that grow there, there are just, just bags and bags. And then they started getting thicker as we approached the city. So that I think the city oh. has this huge radius of like trash that's blown out of it, which is wow. kind of gross. So it would be cool if maybe Vegas could implement that because we know that the desert doesn't break things down as much. Right. As other soil does, right? Yeah. Yeah. But that UV radiation will break down the plastic much quicker and lead to faster leaching of some of those toxic substances like BPA and phthalates and polyvinyls that are in those plastics, which can then get into the water, I mean, cause all kinds of havoc. So there's a public health reason to do it, not just because it's the right thing to do environmentally. Mm-hmm. There's so many reasons to do it. Yeah. And it, it, it looks better if, you know, if you don't care about the environment, if you don't care about your health, you know, maybe you care about how things look, but probably not. I mean, if you don't care about those things, you probably don't care about anything. <laughs> yeah. What do you care about? And we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Money. Like, is There's it, is so it many money? reasons. <laughs> but this should be a bipartisan effort to take a serious look at all of the infrastructural issues that are leading to, you know, the propagation of plastic. Yes, I agree. There's a guy in Chile that started this this program, and he was saying that actually more poor people, basically, I don't know a nicer way to say it, mm-hmm. more disadvantaged people who don't have a whole lot of disposable income, they're using a lot of single-use items. So, for example, they'll go to the corner store, and they will buy a tiny little thing of laundry detergent, whereas someone here in North America might get in their big car and drive and use their expensive membership at Costco and buy, you know, a few kilograms of laundry detergent. So you only buy like one box a year and then recycle it in the end, right? But if if you're living in a, a really poor area, you might only be able to afford like a dollar of laundry detergent. And so his idea is to get these reusable containers that they just hold onto that people can bring with them and then set up bulk stations where you can go and fill up your soap. Yeah. Which is really cool. You know, that's an important point. And that's one of the other main complaints I got about the piece was that it totally ignores what's happening in, in the less developed parts of the world. You know, and there was a recent study that showed like, over 80% of the world's, you know, of the, of the marine plastic comes from like five rivers in Asia, most of it from the Yangtze. Mm-hmm. And so if we're really serious about adjusting this at a global level, we need an international treaty, you know, like the Paris Agreement for plastic pollution. But we also need to invest, the rich nations need to invest in um, reclaiming, you know, increased recycling and plastic reclaiming infrastructure in in less developed countries. Mm -hmm. I feel like we need to do it here first. Like, how can we even go over there and be like, hey, you guys should do this or that when we're not even doing it really well? So maybe if we can figure it out. But I think in those places where they're being hit, like it's, it's, uh, you know, here it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. You know, we're good at sweeping things away and like, oh, what plastic problem, right? Mm -hmm. But in many of these places, they have acute problems with trash. Like everywhere they look, it's just everywhere. And so if we were to give them support for that specific, you know, creating infrastructure for recycling and facilitating the demand for like circular economy and, and you know, reuse of these materials, I think it would have a dramatic improvement in terms of the amount of marine plastic going into the ocean every year. 
You're right, actually. Now that you said that, I think I've changed my mind. I think that it would be better to uh, possibly help those areas first because exactly what you said, that there's so much trash coming out from those certain areas. And even though our system isn't perfect here, we do have some sort of system and we do know a little bit that can help, right? So I think anything that can help, yeah. that that would yeah, be Yeah, I mean, I think really it's cool. both and, you know, it's like yeah, everything. Raise, raise awareness and engagement and action everywhere. Mm-hmm. So are At you... All levels. Yeah, absolutely. Every every levels everywhere we can. I was just on an an airplane and had a conversation. I mean, airplanes are really bad for carbon, but I just went on one anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, I hear you. And you know how they serve all those water cups? And I just put up my water bottle mm-hmm. to fill it up. And I've been doing this for like ten or fifteen years. Like bringing my own mm-hmm. bottle, they pour a little bit of water in it. We're good to go. I never use those plastic cups. And someone for the first time on United gave me trouble about it. They're like well, we, I can give you a cup. And I was like, no, no, I don't want to produce the garbage. And he was like, well, we're not really supposed to do that. And I didn't know what to say because I've never been confronted by someone on an airplane. Usually they just do it. <laughs> so Yeah. It's really I, weird. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, you know, it's like uh, we're obsessed with public health issues, even when they're maybe not an issue yes. here. And so yeah, we're a litigious society. So like everybody's afraid of being sued all the time. And so... Like, I, I've definitely had that experience so many times, and it's very frustrating. You know, I go to on a road trip. There's only McDonald's or something, so, I, like, I go in to get a coffee, and, you know, I'm just like, here's my mug. And they're like, oh, we can't take that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm like, can you just, like, you know, you're just going to pour it in there. You know, it's not going to make any contact, but, you know, there's no rational discussion going to happen. So they just give me a cup. But then I pour into my mug and then they throw it away. Um, But that's a really common thing here to experience. Yeah, I've experienced that too. I experienced it at McDonald's and I got a a refund. Like they didn't do it yet. They were like, we have to pour it in the cup first. And I said, well, Tim Hortons will take my cup and fill it up across the street. And they said, well, we're not going to. So I just went across to Tim Hortons and got it. And they give you a discount too. So I'd, and I actually Mm -hmm. talked to the health inspector of that city to find out what was going on. And it's a McDonald's thing. So that specific franchise location, it's their rule. Whereas right across the street. It's not a a health inspector thing. Nope. The health inspector said. Yeah, it doesn't seem like a hazard at all. Yeah. Are you, are you going to do any more work on this sort of thing? So I'm still working on, you know, barn swallow research. Like that's kind of a, a stressful hobby, but I'm mainly day to day. I'm a resident scientist at a middle school in Nashville, and so I'm developing curriculum, uh, helping you know, collaborating with teachers to kind of switch up or inject some some current research into science and math and social studies and English classes. Just kind of doing interdisciplinary learning. Very cool. Um, but I'm also teaching a sustainability course here, so it'll be five days a week, which I'm very excited about. Nice. Got a bunch of fifth graders that are going to be excited to start a recycling program at our school and um yeah find other ways to engage their um classmates and other everybody to be more sustainable and after writing this piece i recognized how important bottle deposit bills are and so i was like i'm in tennessee there's no bottle deposit bill there's 10 percent recycling rates it's it's abhorrent so i just did a search and looked you know to see what's out there and turns out that a woman named Marge Davis has been fighting this fight for 13, 13 years. And so I got connected with this group, Ten Can, as in Tennessee Can, get their act together, um, to try to get a bottle deposit bill passed in June of 2019. 
So they've already tried to push this through several times, and it looks like they have a lot of good data suggesting that 80% of tenants are in favor of a five-cent deposit, and um, there's a grassroots movement. More and more companies are getting on board. Um, So I'm very hopeful that this time it will go through, and I'm just going to do whatever I can to support that. That's very cool. Good for you. That's really important. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Matt, thank you so much. This has been really awesome. The article's great, Scientific American. I wish you the best, and I'm so glad that you're teaching kids because we need them. We need their help. Or <laughs> the world's I'm, – I'm really scared about what's going to happen to the world if we don't fix this problem. So this article helps, and thank you for that. I'm so glad that you think so. Um, thank you for having me on the show. It's been great talking with you. Thanks. You too. This week on my Countdown to Zero Waste, I bought a symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast to make my own kombucha at home. Don't forget to subscribe to the Zero Waste Countdown podcast on whichever platform you listen in on. And you can follow me on Instagram at zero underscore waste underscore countdown. And if you're interested in becoming a patron of the show, you can find us on Podbean and click the button that says become a patron. For as little as $1 a month, you can donate to the Zero Waste Countdown podcast and radio show to ensure that we get better equipment and we bring you the latest and greatest information in the zero waste world. Change starts now. This is the Zero Waste Countdown podcast.